Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Welcome. We're delighted to have you here today. The Heritage Foundation has long been at the forefront of the fight for parental choice in education. Our belief that parents have a right to direct the education of their children, that accountability for academic outcomes is strongest when families and their children uh, are free to choose, and that freedom, not centralization, is the route to educational excellence, has driven our work on education choice. That's why we're here today to discuss and to celebrate as we mark the 15th anniversary of the D.C. Opportunity Scholarship Program. And I am, go ahead. (laughs) And I can think of no one better to celebrate this day with us than our Secretary of Education, who has long been uh, an advocate, a proponent, a donor to these causes, and we are so grateful for your presence today. There are others here, too, that I'd like to uh, acknowledge. Uh, For those children who've been able to participate in the D.C. uh, program, uh, it has been life-changing. And one of my oldest and dearest friends in this fight is here today, Virginia. We welcome you. And Virginia... talks about uh, what this uh, program means to her, what it has meant to her family, and how her son, William, was having a tough time in a traditional public school, getting pulled into a bad crowd. But as Virginia explains, access to a private scholarship from a neighbor put him on an entirely different trajectory. As she explains, William was able to attend a school that I chose, that was in his best interest. In a couple of months, I saw this child being a child who had hated to go to school and was failing everything to this kid who was just totally engaged in learning. And when I asked him why, he said that for the first time in his educational experience, he felt like people really cared about whether he learned or not. Virginia says the transformation in her son was almost magical. Today, there are more than 1,600 children in the D.C. program who are experiencing the same magic. But the reach of the OSP extends beyond our city. Situated in Washington, D.C., the Opportunity Scholarship Program was and remains a key part of the growing private school choice movement. In 2000, there were just 10 private school choice programs in operation across the country. Today, there are 63 private school choice programs operating in 29 states and in the District of Columbia. It has seen incredible growth. A key supporter for that growth which has provided untold educational opportunity for hundreds of thousands of children across the country, has been our dear friend, Education Secretary Betsy DeVos. That's where you go. Amen. Yes. (laughs) Secretary DeVos understands that educational excellence is not confined to any single type of school. She has been an unwavering defender of putting families first, putting them in the driver's seat of their children's education. 
Secretary DeVos has been a leader in the movement to empower parents, working throughout her career to support the creation of new educational choices for students across this country. Prior to becoming Secretary of Education, she served as chairman of the WinQuest Group, an enterprise and an investment management <coughs> firm. In addition to her leadership in the education area, she's also served on the boards of numerous national and charitable and civic organizations. She's a graduate of Calvin College in Grand Rapids, Michigan, where she earned a BA. She's married to entrepreneur, philanthropist, and community activist Dick DeVos, and together they have four children and seven grandchildren. Please welcome me in joining our dear friend, Betsy DeVos. Madam Secretary. Madam Secretary, welcome. Thank you so much, Kay. Thank let's, you for having me. And I would have leapt up to give you a hug <laughs> and thank you for that introduction. Well, let's um, start with what's on everybody's mind. What happened? So for those of you who don't know, I had a bike accident on December 30th. Um, I was ejected rather forcefully from my bike and landed squarely on my left hip, broke my pelvis in three places, and my hip socket. So it was a very painful injury still have some pain, but it's getting better. And the worst part about it is that I can't put weight on my left leg for three months. So I'm learning to navigate around with the walker, and, <laughs> uh, and obviously I, I inherited my father-in-law's wheelchair, so oh. I was thankful to him for that. Well, you know that we all love you and wish you well, and I think it sends a positive, wonderful message. You cannot keep a good woman down. Absolutely so not. We are glad you're here and glad you're doing better. Thank you. So tell me what it was like 15 years ago and a little bit of your own personal recollection of that particular time. Yes, well, first of all, I can't believe it's been 15 years already. And amazing, and to the day. Um, so I was involved with the whole effort nationally, but my memory of the effort here in the District of Columbia was that parents just got tired of not having options and not having the needs met for their kids, and they demanded something different. And uh, you know, then Mayor Tony Williams and Councilman Kevin Chavis were some of the great uh, elected leadership that came together with a bipartisan coalition of members of Congress, and I think about uh, Congressman Boehner in particular, mm. and Frelinghuysen and Davis, and Senators Lieberman and Feinstein and Collins. Um, you know, what's outstanding to me is this was not a partisan issue. This was an issue about our children and our country's future, and uh, it it was really setting a new tone and trajectory for the children in the capital, and setting an example for the rest of the country. And the, uh, you know, the importance of the Washington Scholarship Program can't be overstated. Um, it has been a small program, admittedly, and that's uh, been through a lot of political machinations, which I'm sure we'll get into. But it has been so important as a demonstration at our national level of what can happen when parents are empowered with choices. And what we've seen in the, uh, in, in the three-sector approach, so improving the traditional public schools, expanding uh, charter schools, and then the voucher program to allow parents to choose private schools for the kids, the outcomes for students in DC have continued to improve from the, the most underperforming district in the country to now one that is on a growth trajectory. And that is represent, the most important thing is what's happening for individual students. And mm. it's, a, it's a very encouraging thing. Two things, one, you mentioned the three sector approach. And I think very often that gets overlooked by one of the two other sectors. But I think it's important to, to as you did, uh, mention all three. Would you just go through those again and talk about why each of those is important? Sure. Well, they're all important because uh, all choices are equally important. Mm -hmm. And today, over 50% of the kids in D.C. attend schools that they're not assigned to. They're making choices of other schools. So the traditional public schools have continued to change and improve in response and reaction to uh, the other the dynamics around them. 
Charter schools have continued to expand and grow. In fact, has you know served the most students in, in uh, DC in terms of choices today. And then the voucher program uh, has given students an important al alternative and option as well. So together, working together, uh, the three-sector approach has been a really holistic way to address the needs of students. You know, I'm also struck, as we talked a little earlier, about 15 years ago, seems like at some point just yesterday, and then it can seem like forever ago. But I am really struck by, in that moment, 15 years ago, how bipartisan the support was. Um, I wish we could garner that kind of support today across party lines to get this done. Well, as I said, education should not be, is not really a partisan issue. It really is reflective of the future of our country. If students today aren't prepared for what comes next, we're not going to be prepared as a nation to compete with the rest of the world. And uh, we know that uh, the most recent polling data has shown conclusively that people want to have choices. They want choices for their kids. 67% of the people in this country, two-thirds, support school choice. The only thing standing in the way is the teachers' unions that have a personal financial vested interest. Wow. Let's, let's have a novel idea. How about we put children first? Would that work? I think that would be the answer for sure. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, when we talk about school choice, uh, often we focus on the children, and we know uh, that, that their improved educational outcomes. But DC has been just a vibrant sector for school choice, and sort of is leading the nation. What else have you seen in DC in terms of who benefits? Not just the children, but families. Well, everyone benefits. When, uh, when kids are in learning environments that work for them, it's, it's great for them and it's great for the families. And we see uh, you know, survey after survey shows that the satisfaction of parents that have chosen, their, that have had the opportunity to choose their child's school is very, very high. They're happy because uh, they're in a place that they feel is right for them. They, they are happy because they feel the school is safe for them, and they're happy because of the outcomes and the achievement that their children are demonstrating in doing so. Let's talk about that a little bit. What about the outcomes? What do we know about uh, what we've learned in the last 15 years about educational outcomes? Well, naturally, there have been lots and lots of different surveys and studies done, uh, both on the DC program as well as choice programs across the country. And, uh, there's, everybody wants to constantly refer to the one where uh, students, especially in math, showed a little dip after their first two years. Well, think about it. If a, if a kid is struggling in a school to which they're assigned, they change schools and start something new. Anytime we change anything, it takes a little while to get up to speed. All of the studies that have been longitudinal in nature and, have, and for students that have been in, in pro the program or in choices the longest period of time, they continue to show growth year over year over year. And I think that's the, that's the important thing in the long, in the long run. Uh, the preponderance of evidence is really clear that choice ultimately works for students and works for families. And there's clear and convincing evidence that there's too many kids across this country that don't have the chance to be in the right school with the right fit. Um, I don't know, was it you, Virginia, years ago who came up with uh, the President of the United States shouldn't be able to live in public housing and send his kids to uh, private schools and the rest of the country can't? I heard that quote and I, I always attributed it to you and I've always meant to ask you, was that really you? Yeah, well, there you go. <laughs> living in public Bravo, housing. Jim, he shouldn't be the only one living in public housing and sending his kids to private schools. Uh, everyone else should have that choice available as well. Um, it hasn't been easy. Funding priorities uh, over the years have been really challenging, and particularly in previous administrations. So what does that sort of look like now? Well, and to, you know, to be very honest, we know this program has been a political football um, in too many ways and too many, for too many years. And um, the most important thing for a program to be successful in the long run is to have predictability and stability. 
And so what has happened over the last, in the past administration, this program was that political football. And it took a real, the, the voucher part of the program in particular took a hit because there wasn't the consistency, the clarity, the stability. And, um, and, and that was a, a huge problem and a huge issue. And even uh, when there was funding, there was every effort made to subtly or not so subtly kill the program. Um, the, the, it, it is unconscionable, in my view, to play a political, use this program as a political football for the kids that are being served. Oh, here, here. Where I come from, that's an applause line. <laughs> Uh, we're, we're celebrating today the, the 15th anniversary, and we've talked a little bit about the challenges that the programs, uh, the program here has had over the last 15 years. Uh, what do you see as the future for this program here in D.C., and how do you see that playing into the school choice movement nationally? Uh, before I go to that one, I just want to really pay tribute to Virginia Walden Ford and the role that she has played over the years to continue to champion choices for kids in the District of Columbia. You're um, here. Putting herself out I know you've had others you've worked with, but you have been such a champion and such an important spokesperson on behalf of the students in, in the District of Columbia. And so thank you, Virginia, for that. And a personal hero of mine. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> but uh, as for the future, it is imperative that Congress not only reauthorize this program, but do so with predictability and stability. And I would argue with an automatic growth piece put into it so that more and more students can continue to take advantage of the choices that some have today. The demand continues to be unmet. In my view, that's the most important poll. Mm -hmm. Parents continue to want more choices. They are demanding more for their kids. And we need to, as a nation, embrace the notion that our future is reliant on what we do for kids today. Absolutely, absolutely. Program, Congress definitely has got to reauthorize it, to um, do so with uh, clear and concise stability around it. And, um, you know, we have today a president who supports choices now. Um, we have uh, an administration that is supportive. We have many on Capitol Hill that are supportive. And I, uh, I just hope that Heritage will stand with us as we continue to advance choices, not only for kids here in the District of Columbia, but across this country. Absolutely. Well, Madam Secretary, I, I just want to say, first of all, we, we really do want to wish you well in your, your recovery. Uh, and the fact that uh, given all of the unique challenges and other responsibilities that you have right now, that you would take the time to come here today to celebrate with us uh, this 15th uh, year anniversary. Um, school choice is so important. Um, I, I know to every student it's important to me personally, and I give you my guarantee that we here at the Heritage Foundation will stand beside you as we continue to fight for kids all across this country. Years ago, I had a, several college students and we were talking about education and how to close the gap. And I put a picture up of a kid who was clearly a poor kid. And I said to them, uh, I want you to go away <clears throat> and think about and develop policy that will help that kid. Every kid in America deserves to have someone who's crazy about them. I am crazy about my kids, crazy about my grandchildren, and crazy in the most wicked way, just like you, Virginia, who are crazy for your kid and for kids in this country. They deserve school choice. And we fought for 15 years, but we're just getting started until every kid in America has educational opportunities. And we're so grateful to you and to the president for standing with us in this fight. So thank you for being here. Thank you for celebrating with us. My privilege. And we are so grateful for what you do every single day. Thank you. Thank you.
Well, that's sort of just. We, um, we have a panel, a very distinguished panel that's going to come. Virginia is a part of that. Um, we've had a great opportunity to discuss school choice with someone who I believe uh, is just a, an American treasure and a national hero. But Lindsay, our director uh, for the Center for Educational Policy Institute for Family and Community and Opportunity, will now take the podium and introduce our panel. Lindsay, thank you so much for what you do every single day thank here at you. Heritage. I'm sorry, I'm a hugger. I have to do it. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Mrs. Jameson. Thank you, Secretary DeVos. Um, you've just been a champion of school choice and a champion of the DC Opportunity Scholarship Program in particular. So as Mrs. James mentioned, we're now going to have a fantastic conversation with individuals who have just been key in the long-term success and the creation from the very beginning of the DC Opportunity Scholarship Program. So I'll ask everybody to go ahead and head up as I introduce you. So Catherine Haley is the Senior Director of K-12 Education Programs at the Philanthropy Roundtable. Prior to joining Catherine, uh, prior to joining the Roundtable, Catherine spent 13 years working on the Hill and most recently served as the Chief Policy Advisor to Speaker of the House John Boehner. Catherine was instrumental in the successful reauthorization of the DC Opportunity Scholarship Program. We're also gonna hear from Virginia Walden Ford. Feel free to take a seat. We're also gonna hear from Virginia Walden Ford, who can only be described as the mother of the DC Opportunity Scholarship Program. Living in DC and motivated by her own children's lack of educational options, in 1998, she took action and formed DC Parents for School Choice. And by 2003, with the support of allied organizations, lawmakers, and a band of parents, Virginia and her team saw the successful passage of the DC Opportunity Scholarship Program in Congress, which President George W. Bush signed into law 15 years ago to this very day. And by the way, Virginia will not mention this herself, but her story will soon be on the big screen, portrayed by Hollywood actors. So be on the lookout for that later this summer, a feature-length film called Miss Virginia. We're very excited for that. And then we'll also get to hear from Dr. Patrick Wolf, who is Distinguished Professor of Education Policy and 21st Century Endowed Chair in School Choice in the Department of Education Reform at the University of Arkansas. As principal investigator of the School Choice Demonstration Project, he has led or is leading major studies of school choice initiatives across the country, including the congressionally mandated evaluation of the DC Opportunity Scholarship Program. Please join me in welcoming our experts. Great, so we'll start on the end with Catherine. Catherine, as I said a minute ago, you were really instrumental in the successful reauthorization of the DC Opportunity Scholarship Program, and you've done so much work on it over the years. Can you tell us a little bit about what it took for Congress to ultimately enact this program and make it law? Yeah, well, first of all, Lindsay, thank you so much for inviting me, and thanks to all of you for being here today to celebrate 15 years of the OSP. I really stand on the shoulders of giants, and those are people like Virginia, uh, individuals like Mayor Williams and Kevin Chavis, and also individuals like Secretary Rod Page and President Bush, and individuals like Nina Reese, and uh, Jenny here at Dentals has played a big role. Um, there's a lot of folks that, first of all, they had the idea in the 90s, and they worked with Congress. They were frustrated with what was happening in the city, I think. Virginia started mobilizing parents in the late 90s, early 2000s, um, and you had willing individuals with uh, former Oversight and Government Reform Chairman Tom Davis, uh, Appropriator Rodley, Rodney Frelingheisen, Speaker Boehner was then Chairman of the Ed and Workforce, and then you had some great allies in the Senate, but it was really an amendment to the, an appropriations bill in 2003 that passed 205 to 203. Uh, and it was fought for. I was working in the Senate at the time, and I remember getting letters to the member for whom I was working, and, like, strike this provision. It is a horrible policy. 
Um, but thankfully, uh, Freilingheisen stood strong as an appropriator, and they were able to preserve the program. And I think there's a lot of leadership from President Bush and others who ensured that this very small, tiny, three-sector program was preserved. Um, but it, the, it sort of continued as it did um, until 2009, and it became uh, political fodder. Uh, for individuals, uh, I think maybe that's saying it lightly, um, <laughs> but it became political fodder. And um, Senator Durbin uh, inserted a provision that the program could not continue until it was reauthorized. Um, and he added some additional language in there. And that was that sort of set the tenor for 2009 and the future of the program. Um, we had in March of 2009, 216 scholarships were rescinded because there was uncertainty about whether or not the program would continue to exist. Uh, the president came out with his first budget in April of 2009, and he had slightly pivoted, largely to many of the folks uh, that were in this room, including Virginia. There was a lot of protests that were happening um, outside of the Department of Education. You, uh, we learned that there was an OSP scholar at Sidwell Friends, which is where President Obama sent his daughters. And so we parents were saying the irony that we elected you and you get to exercise choice, but we cannot continue to send our children to the schools that we feel like are best. And so um, set the tenor and the tone. Speaker Boehner at that time was minority leader. He teamed up with Senator Lieberman and we introduced legislation to reauthorize the program. Hearings started to be happening. And then in 2011, um, Speaker Boehner was elected speaker and we were, uh, <laughs> we were facing a government shutdown. We had not actually had one. It was April 2011. And this was the final deal. The House had passed legislation to reauthorize the program to codify the three-sector approach before it had been more of a gentleman's agreement. We had the DC Opportunity Scholarship Program in addition to two other sectors of school improvement dollars. Um, and we wanted to sort of formalize that you don't get one without the other, where this was about improving all three sectors for all kids. And so um, literally, it was like, I think I was waiting in the building before I was exited out because I was um, going to be furloughed. Um, I, I think it was like 11.58 and I got a call and they're like, deal has been made, OSP's in, get busy, figure out how to draft this in the context of an appropriations bill. And so anyway, but then again, and I'm rambling, but it became then the implementation and implementation matters. You know, we've over the last, I guess, 10 years going back and forth, who's eligible, who's not, who can be in the lottery, who's in the evaluation group. Um, and I feel like we're on a good path forward. Um, but again, like Congress needs to do its job to ensure that funding is made available, that there's certainty for kids um, and fidelity in the implementation of the program. So. Yeah, in case you can't tell, Catherine has an encyclopedic knowledge of <laughs> everything that happened every single day <laughs> with regards to the DCOSP, which is why she's here. I was actually going to ask you about the 216, so I'm glad you brought that up. I mean, just yeah. to underscore, these were 216 children who had scholarships in their hands that lost them in that Literally. fight. I mean, it was, I remember there was a Save the 216 mm -hmm. uh, website at the time, so... Great. Well, thank you for that history. Yeah. So, Virginia, to piggyback a little bit off of Catherine, I mean, when we heard about it a little bit with your son, but can you talk to us a little bit about your involvement? How did that start? How did you first get motivated to be involved? I think one of the reasons I first got motivated, but I have to say thank you for inviting me back. I am so happy to be back in D.C. and and seeing everybody and talking to everybody about this program. And I'm, I'm just surprised when I wake up and 15 years have passed. So, but I got really involved because my son got a private scholarship, as Kay said, and, uh, and, but I looked around and my neighbor's children were failing and getting in trouble and not having that same kind of opportunity. And I felt like maybe there was something that I could do about that. Of course, I was a single mother raising kids. I had no idea what to do. And, but then, you know, God just works it. And he sent me to this group and we were talking about having opportunities for kids 
and I heard from a, somebody from um, Floyd Flake from New York, his office was there and asked me if uh, I wanted to speak before a group. And I think, um, I'm getting old, so I forget names. But anyway, I spoke before the Education Committee, and, and I told them how William had gotten a scholarship, and it had changed his life. And, and it was a miracle. It was very special. And for some reason, that I became kind of a spokesperson for that, and I started going out and talking to parents. And that initial fight was um, in '99. Was we actually that passed through Congress? It got me more excited about it. And then the president at that time vetoed it. So we had to mm. then change the strategies. You know, do we just let this fall? Because I was really disappointed and ready to get out of this. I, I just didn't see how we could be successful. But then 2003 came, in 2002, at the end of 2002, um, John Boehner and, and, uh, and Jeff Flake Jeff. Came, uh, came to me and talked to me about organizing parents to do some legislation um, that would benefit us. And of course, my particular interest was the voucher program because I knew that there were private schools all over the city that our kids should be able to go to. So that that got me all excited and involved. And William, I saw the change in my son, who is now this wonderful man. And um, But I, I really believe, and he and I have talked about it, that our life would have been totally different had he not had the chance to get up scholarship to go to a school that better served him. He was a child that needed to be in a smaller environment where people really cared about him. And not only was it a miracle that he went and people cared about him, but it was the first time he had been in a school that, that you know, didn't have um, the uh, gun, yeah, metal, metal detectors yeah. when you yeah. came into school. Mm -hmm. And so that really impacted him. He talks about that to this day, and he's 36 now. He was 14 then. And uh, so that's what got me involved. Getting other parents involved was so easy. All you do is you go and you say, we want to do something to help our children. And despite what everyone says, and despite what the rhetoric was at that time, which was low-income parents don't care about their kids, low-income parents will not organize to do anything, I found myself being inundated with calls and going to meetings where I, I would think that there would be 20 or 30 people and 200 would show up because, you know, that was just the wrong thing. These people here in D.C., including myself, cared about what happened to their children. And so we organized over a period of time hundreds and hundreds of parents. And we went to the Hill every day for a year. And we talked to legislators and told them my story. You mentioned Rodney Friedlandhausen. Went to his office one day with 50 parents and kids. He found chairs for every one of those people. And mm. we sat down and he talked to us for two hours. You know, and I mean, he he was just so anxious to hear what parents had to say, and I think that parents played such a positive role. Senator Frist, every time he spoke of the scholarship program or the voucher program on the Senate floor, he held a petition. And people don't remember we had a petition of three thousand people before we had a petition of eight thousand people early on. Eight thousand in the reauthorization fight, three thousand in the initial fight, and every, and we had copied it. And every time he was on the Senate floor, he would hold that, and he told me it made him feel close to the families that he was speaking on behalf of. And that motivated us, and that got us excited. It became such a wonderful experience for parents who had never been across the Anacostia Bridge. They had spent their entire lives believing that they could not speak out on behalf of their children. All we said was, you have every right to speak on behalf of your children, so let's go and do it. And it, it empowered them so much. So that's, it became, and still is, a, a, a great big part of my life. You know, I still keep in touch with the families. I still talk to the families. 
I still talk to the kids. I know what kids are doing or uh, who are not kids anymore, adults now. Uh, but, you know, anytime you organize people for something this important, despite what anybody tells you, you know, it's not hard. And, and yet it was hard, <laughs> you know, but it, but it wasn't. You know, you see people's hearts and you, you hear what people have to say and all they needed is somebody to give them a little push and say, you can do this. And uh, I, I just remember those days of being on Capitol Hill with parents who were nervous and then they would get up and testify bef before a committee and you would think that they had been doing this forever, you know. Mm. And a lot of them are like me. I, I, I don't mind speaking about school choice and about children, but if the preacher asked me to read the scripture, I get really nervous. So I'm just, I speak, and I'm passionate about God, but it's something about speaking about school choice that gets me all excited. And uh, so, you know, that's what got me really, really involved. So despite, you know, so you're a superwoman and you said it was easy to get parents, but it still sounds like a lot of work between what you and it Catherine was. were doing. So I would ask Patrick, is it worth it? I mean, what are we seeing in terms of academic outcomes, attainment outcomes? What's the impact? Sure. Uh, so I just want to mention that a movie also has been made of my life. <laughs> um, and parents well, all around the country <laughs> are using it to put their kids to bed. Oh. <laughs> uh, well, we've, uh, we've evaluated the Opportunity Scholarship Program two different ways, you know, with sort of statistical techniques and also with qualitative research. And, and we've learned a lot about the effect this program has. Uh, on the test score side, it's been a bit of a mixed bag. As uh, Secretary DeVos mentioned, uh, there's, there's this, this adjustment period the first few years when kids switch schools. They take a step back. The curriculum's different. The sequencing of topics is different. So we, we not surprisingly, often see test scores go down the first few years. But they always swing back up. And so we saw clear evidence in the third year of our evaluation that students were scoring higher on reading, uh, on the reading exam. Uh, but we didn't stop there. We followed them all the way through graduation from high school, and that's where we found the biggest positive impact of the OSP. Uh, the students who, who joined the program in the high school grades graduated from high school at a rate that was 21 percentage points higher if they participated in the OSP. So the control group rate was 70%. And very similar students uh, who participated in the program graduated from high school at a rate of 91%. The girls who participated, 100%. Every single one of them graduated. So, so that's very exciting because you know, how far you go matters more than how much you know. Uh, so, I mean, if you had to press me, would you rather see test score effects or educational attainment effects in an education evaluation? Attainment wins hands down because graduating from high school, going to college, persisting in college, graduating from college, those are life-changing. Test scores, you know, they're, they're an interesting measure in the short term, but in the long term, attainment really matters. And the other thing we've, we've seen consistently is, you know, Virginia mentioned the importance of safety. Uh, and we see that parents consistently rate their child's school as much safer if they are participating in the OSP. In the latest evaluation, the students confirm that, uh, that, that they view their school as safer, that they experience fewer uh, incidences of, of dangerous and bullying activity in their schools. And that makes a huge difference for kids. That's probably why they stay engaged in the educational project longer, go farther in school. That's great. So you sort of answered my second question, which is what are the long-term outcomes? What do we know in terms of not just the OSP, but choice generally? So you started to hint to, to some of those long-term outcomes. And then you also answered what I was going to have as a backup question, which is do parents look for something other than test scores? But it sounds like they do, that they're looking for school safety and mm -hmm. many other uh, facets of religious experience, um, the educational options that provide them with morals and character development. So 
I'll go to the third order question then, instead of being a surprise. But you know, what, what do you say to somebody who says, well, yeah, they switched schools, but still we saw a negative impact on their, their math achievement outcomes after a year. I mean, what, what are test scores actually capturing, or are they capturing what we hope to measure long term? And should we worry about that dip? So I did a, a follow-up study with some colleagues, and we looked at the initial achievement effects of school voucher evaluations, and then the long-term attainment effects. Not just school voucher evaluations, actually, any school choice intervention. So there have been uh, 30 studies of charter schooling, private school choice, et cetera, that have looked at immediate test score effects and also followed kids all the way into college. And we found that there's very little relationship between the effect that these programs have on student test scores immediately and the long-term effect they have on educational attainment and, and longer life outcomes. And we don't know exactly why that's the case, but um, I suspect that private schools of choice focus a lot more on the habits of children, the behaviors of children, grit, conscientiousness, persistence, these kinds of non-cognitive outcomes that really have a lasting effect on living a successful life and don't show up in immediate test score outcomes. And uh, I, I've also found that, that school choice really means a lot for these kids. And so I just want to throw out a quote from a young man we interviewed in um, our research that was published as, as the school choice journey, which is really the story of the development and, and initial launch of the DC uh, Opportunity Scholarship Program. So this, this young man said, uh, the OSP gave you a way out of nowhere. You're not used to being on top of everything. You're not the one that got the killer jump shot, but you're just trying to go somewhere and go to school and get away from this environment. And you've got that opportunity to use your scholarship. Amen. So, You've got the data to back up that, broadly speaking, school choice works, but Virginia's got the, I mean, you have student experiences too, but you've really got the, you know, hands-on parent experience. When you meet with families, you know, do they, when you talk to them, do they just talk about the impact on their child, or do you see broader family effects, even broader community effects as a result of choice participation? Well, well one of the things that I've, I've kept in touch with a lot of the DCOSP families but one family in particular that I'd like to share a little bit about is the Battle family. Their mother was an activist and really was empowered to advocate. And she had two young sons. They were 11 and 14 at the time. And, um, and she became such a great activist. And she was determined that her entire community was going to benefit from DCOSP. So she would call me and she would say, can you come over because I got 50 parents coming and she would have 50 parents there and we spent whole evenings uh, filling out applications and talking to parents about schools and talking to children about what was going on. This was such a personal fight for me. I mean, they became like my family and we, we joke about me being the mother of anything. I'm actually like more like the grandmother and stuff, but <laughs> You know, they became my family, you know, and I, and I miss them even now. So I call them and I keep in touch so I know what the kids are doing. But Pam told me one time, Miss Virginia, this scholarship program has changed the attitudes of our entire community. Once one or two kids got in, and, and they were usually Carl, Carlos and Calvin, got into the program and came home and they were doing well and all excited. Other parents in that community wanted to see the same thing. You know, one of the things that I learned that there had been so many negative things that happened when they began to see positive movement, especially with the children, educationally, then everybody got excited. You know, if Calvin made an A, the community was excited, certainly the people in the apartment building where they live. And they lived in one of the most challenging communities in the city. Calvin, did, those kids didn't go out to play, but Pam was determined that those boys were going to benefit from it, uh, an education, and she worked really hard to make sure that happened. 
and worked hard to make sure it happened for her neighbors. So we found through the years that when we'd go back to communities where a number of children had scholarships, we would find the entire community celebrating and, and no, no longer were people saying, my kids won't go to college because they were seeing kids go to college. And one other person I'd like to talk about who is just my heart is Tiffany Dunstan. Tiffany came from a very, very challenging uh, community. Her grandmother raised her. They had a lot of tragedy in their family. I met her when she was 13, and I remember her telling me, and I think I had a 13-year-old or at, at the same time, and I remember telling her, her telling me, I want to be the hope for my family. Mm. I want to do well in life so that my family will be really proud of me. And I remember thinking, my 13-year-old wouldn't say that, <laughs> you know. And uh, she just seems so mature. I have watched her over the years do just that, just not hope for just her family, but for her whole neighborhood. Tiffany got her Ph.D., Last year in January, and she just turned 29, which really impacts that whole 15 years of us. And uh, she had she talks about how without the opportunity, she also graduated valedictorian from her high school, but she talks about how without that scholarship, she would not be where she is today. And she says it strongly and with conviction. And uh, so I keep up with her life because I never know. She's doing research on cancer. And she told me um, that she was going to find a cure. And, and I believe her. <laughs> I do. And uh, so these children have just, you know, changed the attitude and the outlook and the despair. You know, at the beginning we say we felt hopeless and helpless. And in the families that we've served over the year, hundreds, thousands, we, we don't see that hopelessness and helplessness because they know that there's something that will benefit their children that will be great. And, you know, I, uh, I tell story after story, and, and Catherine and Patrick both were, we were all together in this, and we saw kids do well, and we saw the beginnings, and we recruited kids, and and um, I worried her to death. And, you know, <laughs> it, to watch what has happened in 15 years is just so amazing to me. To see these children doing so well has just, it makes my heart light. And, uh, and we could tell lots of stories, yeah. you know. And to see all those people, Catherine was talking about, you know, when the reauthorization happened and when the speaker became the speaker. <laughs> and anyway, he called me mm -hmm. personally. And I'm a little country girl from Arkansas, so I still get excited about stuff like this. Speaker Banner called me one night and one afternoon and said, don't worry. We had lost the scholarship program, remember? Mm -hmm. He said, don't worry. The scholarship program will be fine. He said, just give, get a few parents ready to come up when we announce it. And I have that picture of me and Joe and mm -hmm. the speaker. And uh, there were so many champions that cared about what happened to kids. So many people that wanted kids to do well. And uh, I've had the privilege and the honor of being able to sit and watch those kids benefit from this program. And it's an amazing thing. It started with my own son. I lightly said he's a nice young man. He's a wonderful young man. Mm -hmm. And I really don't think he would be here had it not been for getting a scholarship to go to school that better serves his needs. His friends, his five friends that stayed at my house when they were little boys, one is on drugs and doesn't know his own name. One was murdered last year. Mm -hmm. Two of them moved out of D.C., which probably saved them. One of them is the father of four children by four different girls, dropped out of school in the 11th grade. And they were around me all the time. And I've tried to encourage them and help them. But they were in schools that did not serve them well. And William has been the success story of that. And yes, I'm proud of it because I'm his mother, but I'm proud of it because he's the child of the District of Columbia.
And he is, uh, went into the armed services? Uh, he, uh, he went to the Marine Corps, yes, served eight years, and now he's uh, a driver for UPS, which is the best job in the world for that boy. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't need to be in the office. He needs to be out of the truck, and he loves it. So. Well, that's great. Well, two really quick questions. Um, yeah. <laughs> two really quick questions before we turn it over. And I know the first rule of moderating is never ask a question you don't know the answer to, but I am wondering, uh, is there any research out there that does try to capture those broader community effects of choice, or would there even be a way to sort of, kind of figure that out long term? Sure. I mean, there have been 26 studies of what happens to kids who remain in traditional public schools when private school choice programs are launched or expanded? And 25 of the 26 find that test scores go up for the kids who are supposedly left behind in the public schools. Some of those studies have gone inside the black box to try and, and figure out, well, what, what, what do public schools do differently when they're, when they're challenged with competition from school choice? Uh, and, and they tend to find that, that the public schools communicate more frequently and more effectively with parents. Well, that's definitely going to have positive spillover effects. Uh, they also develop new programs that fit the needs of the students attending their schools because now they have an interest in holding them and keeping them uh, in their school. Uh, there's also uh, research on the effects of private school choice on crime. A study I co-authored with Corey DeAngelis uh, is, is forthcoming in Social Science Quarterly, and we found that the Milwaukee Parental Choice Program had a positive effect on reducing the likelihood of students committing crimes in their early 20s. It was a significant reduction in uh, criminal offenses that were recorded and, and, and accumulated in a, in a statewide database for kids who, who participated in the choice program compared to a carefully matched comparison group. And, and there's also been some research just in general, what happens to communities uh, when, when choice is expanded. Private schools, public charter schools become community centers. They become safe, vibrant focuses of, of community activity. And when they close down, you lose that. Uh, some, some researchers at Notre Dame University published a, a wonderful book called Lost Classroom, Lost Community about when private schools that are active in the inner city close down, uh, crime goes up, disorder goes up in the community because those are, those are stabilizing institutions mm -hmm. in those environments. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And we'll end on Catherine and then open it up to questions. But so do you have advice for Congress? And this is a critically important option for families. So... What should we expect moving forward? What should they be doing? So it's, uh, the program's reauthorized through FY 2019. So here we are again. Um, and I would look to all of you who are advocates of the program to build relationships with members of the, um, on the Hill. You have Mark Walker in the House and in the Senate you have Senator Feinstein and Senators Lankford and Tim Scott who are huge champions of this program. Um, but we need new allies. A lot of the old historic champions of this program have since retired and are moving on. Um, I think the moment I heard that Congressman Frelinghuysen had retired, I was like, oh my gosh, who's going to be the advocate on the House Appropriate mm -hmm. Committee? Um, but a role is figure out who those champions are, because building coalitions with members is absolutely critical. Um, I should note that Congressman Lipinski has been a loyal, faithful ally in this fight. Um, I think there's yeah. two Democrats in the House that have been supportive of the program. Um, but it's building those relationships. It's the ensuring fidelity of the implementation of the program, asking D.C. how they're spending their dollars, asking the, the charter school sector, how are you expanding and creating opportunity for kids? Um, but then it's being really creative and figuring out how do you fully fund the program. It's a three-sector approach. I don't believe it's currently at the $20 million allocation for all three sectors, so $60 million. Um, I know we're in fiscal constraints, but we got to get those numbers up. But then it's also feeling out how can you creatively attach it and ensuring that the program will continue uh, for many, many, many more years. Um, 
And I, I think the secretary was great. I think they have been champions with uh, serving our children as the implementer of the program. Um, I think they can continue to provide oversight and provide technical support to the entity and providing certainty that uh, there is going to be resource or there will be resources available for parents so that they can continue to benefit on the from the scholarship side um, and continuing to highlight the benefits of the program. So um, there you do have a divided Congress, but I think the secretary, the president, um, and more importantly, the parents within the community, they can really use their voices to compel Congress to do the right thing. That's great. Thank you. We have time for a couple of questions. Um, yes, Ashley. If you can just wait for the mic to. Hi there. Thank you all for being here today. My name is Ashley McClay. I'm with the DC State Board of Education and a proponent of school choice, one of the only elected leaders we have in DC that is a proponent of school choice programs. Um, as you have talked about today, we've seen a lot of the success stories of our children in DC through the DC OSP. We have, uh, we have money coming into all three sectors because of DC OSP. Uh, as we prepare for 20, uh, after 2019 and the renewal and the reauthorization of OSP, what do we say to uh, the likes of Eleanor Holmes Norton, David Grasso, and other DC City Council leaders who are against OSP in the name of the government control and uh, in the name of accountability? Well, Virginia's probably well positioned to. <laughs> well, you up. know, um, <laughs> what I would say is this is benefiting the children that you care about, period. Of course, we said that for 15 years, but, uh, and not got very much response, but I would just continue to say that, you know, I, we don't know why Eleanor doesn't support it. Uh, you know, Ms. Norton, I guess, doesn't support it, but she's always not supported it because she said it wasn't enough accountability or whatever. But these are her families. These are the people that elect her. These, you know, we've said it over and over again, I don't, and I think we continue to do that. I mean, I, you know, or to anybody that's in opposition, we need, to, I, I believe we need to start using some of the stories of Tiffany and Carlos and Michael White and countless other students who would not have gone to college without this program because they wouldn't have finished high school. Our biggest fear, you know, with a lot of the kids going into the program is that they were so far behind they would get disappointed and they wouldn't stay in the program. And we found, to the contrary, that once they began to catch up, they got excited about learning. We have a, a kid, Jordan White. She wasn't a bad student. She just wasn't... Uh, being served by her needs were not being served and Jordan graduated went to Oberlin went to Japan is a um, translator for a Japanese company in Japan and wow. has been there for the last what six years seven years and Jordan you know we don't know where she her mother just said to me I don't know where Jordan would have been without this you know she was she had some particular interests and the Schools she read were not serving those interests. So I think that's what we say to them. Um, not me, but maybe students and some of the parents. You know, just to piggyback on what Catherine was saying, you know, I think another thing is building a parent base again, making sure that you have hundreds of parents. What made us successful 15 years ago was all the wonderful people that supported us, but also the thousands of parents that were there. You know, as I said, you know, Speaker Boehner and uh, Senator Frist and many others said to us over and over again, we appreciate your being here because that makes, uh, gives us credibility in our part of the fight. Senator, um, Senator Feinstein said, we need to take care of the kids of the District of Columbia. You remember that? Mm -hmm. On the Senate floor, she said, what is this? We need to take care of the children of the district. And they did, you know, finally. And 
But it was scary. It was hard. But getting those parent voices, you know, the parents are the ones that are being served by this program. They know how to articulate how they feel. They know how to stand up and say, I want something better for my children. So two things you use, the parents that are currently looking for better options for their children and the parents who have already received. And there's a lot of them in D.C. that will be willing to stand up and talk about it. And I think that has to be done again. It has been a concern of mine for a couple of years that parents are not being standing up as much as they had, you know, and that mm -hmm. for some reason we're saying, oh, we don't really need them that much because we've done so much. But I think that the parent voice has to be continually heard in any fight for any period of time because they are the ones that are being served by this program. I talk about William because he's my son. No other reason. I talk about William. And I'm going to keep talking about him. Somebody said to me, said, they'll get tired of my story, remember? And they, I don't care. They're going to hear it forever as far as I'm concerned, <laughs> you know, because that's what makes this fight important. You yeah. know what I mean? I would just second that. I mean, beyond the parents, the kids themselves, I think we the maybe tend to underestimate what they can do, but the most powerful you know, testimony that we heard were the testimonies of the yes. kids. I mean, going in front of Congress, and they were as you know, prepared for that as you could ever imagine. So bringing the kids in as well. We've got time for one more question. Yes, ma'am. Good afternoon. Thank you um, for hosting this this um, afternoon. My name is Saida Armstrong, and I'm with Performance Management Services. Um, and my, well, first of all, I'm one of those single, um, my grandmother was a single parent, and I don't know if you remember Marva Collins. I do. Um, really I'm a product well. of Marva Collins Schools in Chicago. Okay. So this fight has been going on since the 70s, since the 80s, you know, and there are voices out there, and you're right, what can we do? My question is to Katherine Haley. What can we do in terms of making sure that the students' voice are heard? Because they do have a powerful voice, and they do have a plethora of stories to tell. We work closely with serving our children as well, um, our organization. And I know that there are success stories right now being told and written in the D.C. public schools, private schools, um, transitioning out of public schools to go to these various private schools, and they're not being heard right now. So what are we doing to prepare for this 2019 reauthorization? Thank you. That's an excellent question. Um, I'm going to give a shout out to American uh, Federation for Children because they are equipping um, students that have benefited from choice through their Voices of Choice program. And these are young men and women who, some of whom are college students, some of them are in high school, that have benefited from things like the Opportunity Scholarship Program to go and use their voice and uh, influence members of Congress or in their state legislature. So there is at least one program there. Um, I know that during my tenure on Capitol Hill, I worked with a number of different private schools to identify who are your superstars because I want you to come and meet with this member or this member. And, oh, by the way, we want you to go and testify before the Oversight and Government Reform Committee. Or we'd like you to be the guest of the speaker in the speaker's box. That was something that was very important to Speaker Boehner so we could kind of help amplify that voice. Um, but I think it's working with serving our children. I think it's identifying who are the potential parents and then who are the students that are willing when... Um, the ambassador, I think during uh, Mayor Fenty's tenure, uh, the student ambassador, the, the student mayor, I think, I can't remember. Ronald Halassi. Yes. He's, he's um, in the book. <laughs> uh, he was a scholarship beneficiary, and he was the most incredible yeah. spokesman. He was at every rally. He was in front of uh, um, the Department of Education. He was before members of Congress. And when individuals say, oh, you're, this is just Congress imposing this program upon you, he's like, no way. Like, I, I want this, and I'm going to go really far because of this program. So I think it's working with serving our children. It's working with national organizations, but also local organizations. Um, it's using social media. I mean, 10 years ago, Twitter was like barely on the face of the map. Now you, have, you can create profiles and you can create opportunities to tell stories that 
often didn't have uh, space. So um, those are a few ideas, I think. That's great. Any final thoughts before we wrap up? I, one thing I do want to say is um, I appreciate so much the secretary um, and her fight and her assistance in, in this effort. And she has been vitally involved, I mean, just really involved from the beginning. And I, want, I just want to say this, uh, she was my first, one of my first funders. She was one of the first people when we started DC Parents with School Choice that believed enough in this little ragtag group of parents that I like to call them, who cared enough to give us the money to be able to fight. And that, I can't even tell you how important, I will always love her for that. And um, so, you know, I want to make sure that people understand that this is, this is a person that will fight for us and will fight for the children. Uh, we've seen it for many, many, more than 15 years. And I'll just say, you know, I'm usually a quantitative researcher, but I've really enjoyed the qualitative research that I've done with, with families. I, I, I get so many more insights about what this is all about there. And, and what really struck me was when Congress tried to take school choice away from low-income families in Washington, D.C. I mean, it was amazing. The turnout at the rallies, That's as Virginia awesome. mentioned, it was way beyond expectations. And I think policymakers were kind of, were kind of shocked by that. It, it shocked them into action. Mm -hmm. And democracy worked it the did. way it's supposed to. But, you know, school choice is, is really a powerful need for families, and if you try to take it away, you know it's it, it's going to be it's going to be a tough battle. Great. Well, please join me in thanking our panelists. <laughs> Thank you all for being here. I wrote it down. <laughs>